Welcome back to the Calvary Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. This is Pastor Trey um, coming to you from beautiful Calvary, Oregon, in Central Oregon. Uh, today, I want to begin with a Christmas quiz. Um, this may not go over real well over the podcast, but that's okay. We're going to try it anyway. Uh, who told Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem? You know, was it an angel? Was it a prophecy? Was it Joseph's dad? Actually, it was Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the one who issued the decree that everyone should go to the uh, ancestral home. And Joseph, being from the house of David, had to go to David's hometown, Bethlehem. Okay. Number two, what form of transportation did Mary and Joseph use to get to Bethlehem? Was it a donkey? Did they walk? Did uh, Mary ride the donkey and Joseph walk? Did they take a, a Nazareth Uber? Actually, the answer to this is who knows? The biblical account does not tell us how they got to Bethlehem. We could assume that they probably used some kind of cart or donkey. They probably, in Mary's condition, did not walk. But uh, we just don't know. We just don't know. Number three, who saw the star that led them to Bethlehem? Was that Mary and Joseph that saw the star that led them to Bethlehem? Was it the shepherds? Was it King Herod? Actually, it was uh, what we know of in Matthew chapter 1, I believe it is, uh, or chapter 2, Magi. Magi from the east. Okay, that's who saw the star. Number four, what was the sign for the shepherds to find the Messiah? Was it a baby who doesn't cry? Was it a baby that was going to be born in an animal stall? Was it an inn with a neon sign that flashed no vacancy? Now, the sign for the shepherds that the angels gave to them, according to Luke chapter 2, was a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Number five, what did the innkeeper say to Joseph and Mary? Did he tell them, come back after the Christmas rush? Uh, did he tell them, we have no room in the inn? Did he tell them, you can stay in my stable in the back? Was it a couple of those things? Actually, the answer is who knows. We don't know because the innkeeper isn't even mentioned in the Bible story. It, it just said that Jesus was born and they laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. There was no conversation recorded and we don't even know the innkeeper's name. He's not even mentioned. Isn't that interesting? What are magi? And speaking of magi in the east that saw the star, are magi ancient kings? Are they ancient explorers? Are they ancient travel guides? Uh, do we even know what magi are? Actually, we do know what magi are. Magi are actually ex um, astrologers. They're the ones who would look at the signs in the night sky and try to find prophecy uh, fulfillment and things like that. So they would have been ancient astrologers, magi, probably from Persia, which is modern day, I mean, not Persia, um, Babylon which is modern-day Iraq, maybe Persia, which is modern-day Iran, uh, but in that part of the world. Um, just, just a few more. Why didn't the Magi go back to tell Herod about where Jesus was? Was it because they had gotten lost? Was it because they feared losing their life? 
did was it because they didn't understand what Herod had asked them to do? Was it that Joseph paid them off to keep the birth of Jesus a secret? Now, they didn't go back to tell Herod because they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod because Herod wanted to kill the child. So they went home a different way, not through Jerusalem. Two more. Number eight. What did the angels sing to the shepherds? Was it glory to the newborn king? Was it away in a manger, no crib for a bed? Was it peace on earth, goodwill to men? Was it silent night, holy night? Actually, this is a technicality, but they did not sing anything. Go back and check it out in Luke chapter 2. They said glory to the newborn king. They said peace on earth, goodwill to men. Um, They said a lot of things, but they didn't sing anything. And that brings us to the last question. What is an angelic host? Is it an angel that welcomes people into heaven? Is it an angel choir? Is it an angel party? Do we even know what an angelic host is? Yes, we do. A host is an army, a unit of an army. And so what the shepherds saw in the skies that day was not an angel choir singing peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was an angel army that was shouting, chanting, glory to God in the highest peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's what an angelic host is. It's an angelic army. You can now see why the angel would have said, do not fear. Again, we've been focusing in on this year's Advent Sundays on the songs of Christmas as heaven and nature sing. And it's more than just the tune and the harmony that we're looking at. We're we're looking at the, the theology, the deep truths found in some of the most beloved Christmas songs that we sing during this time of year. Uh, We looked at the anticipation and hope for the coming Messiah as we lit the prophecy candle and studied O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Last week, we lit the Bethlehem candle and sang O Little Town of Bethlehem. And we looked at the character trait of humility, looking at how God infuses his power into the ordinary to bring about the extraordinary. This morning, we come to my personal favorite Christmas hymn, solely because of this incredible message found in a couple of the verses. It is powerful, and it always touches me deeply. Now, the tune for the song was written by the composer Felix Mendelssohn in 1840. The words were written by none other than the brother of the great churchman John Wesley. His brother's name is Charles, Charles Wesley. In his time, Charles Wesley would write over 6,500 hymns. And this particular one, along with uh, Jesus, Lover of My Soul, are considered to be the finest hymn lyrics that Charles Wesley ever wrote. The song that we look at today is Hark, the Herald Angels Sing, which has sometimes been named the most popular hymn in the English language. It's based on Luke 2, where the angels visit the shepherds who are out in the fields watching their flocks by night. And indeed, the first verse is all about that very first Christmas birth announcement. Hark! The herald angels sing glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark! The herald angels sing glory 
to the newborn king. Now, in the song, we obviously begin looking at the angels, the angels that are singing, according to Charles Wesley. Now we know the difference. But there are some who wonder about the existence of angels. If you are a Bible believer, you cannot get around the absolute truth that these heavenly beings exist. Angels are mentioned 108 times in the Old Testament and mentioned 165 times in the New. It's good to note that the way the angels are uh, depicted in Scripture is definitely different than the way our popular culture portrays them. Our culture says that angels look like little cherub Little little babies with wings, or or typically these these women with harps and uh, beautiful angels and beautiful robes, and they sing as they uh, dance on clouds. But I want you to listen to the way the angels are actually described in the Bible. First of all, angels are spirit beings. They they were created. The Bible tells us before mankind, a little higher than human beings with powers that are beyond human powers, and they can appear and disappear just like that. Secondly, angels are created to serve and to worship God. In that sense, they do his bidding as they serve the family of God. They serve us as they serve him. For those of you who believe that you somehow turn into an angel when you die, I always have to ask, why Why would you want a demotion? You see, Though they were created a little higher than mankind, one day mankind, redeemed mankind, stepping into eternity, will be sons and daughters of the king, and the angels will stay servants. So why would you give up being a son or a daughter of the king, a prince or a princess of the king of kings, to be a servant of the sons and daughters of the king of kings? You don't want to turn into an angel when you die because you're a saint, you are one of God's family members. But they are the ones that serve God and serve us as well. Thirdly, apparently there are different types and classes of angels according to the Bible. Angels, as kind of an overarching class, have appeared to human human beings in several different ways. Uh, For example, Isaiah describes seeing seraphs as having six wings and having the ability to fly, and they are surrounding God's throne. In Genesis, we see angels showing up just like that, looking like men. Apparently, though, sometimes angels show up and are so frightening in their glory that one of the first things that they have to say to people is, don't be afraid. And then fourthly, like our quiz pointed out, they're not members of a choir as much as they are soldiers in a military unit. The times that we see them praising God in the Bible, it's always in the form of saying something or shouting something. The closest that I come to imagining what the host of heaven would be like was a video that I saw one time where a group of U.S. Marines were gathered together in a worship service, and they were singing the song Days of Elijah. And in that song, there is a line in the chorus where they say, so lift your voice. It's the year of Jubilee. And after that phrase, so lift your voice in unison. And it just gave you chills. These soldiers resonated this, hoorah! They shouted, hoorah! It's the year of Jubilee, and out of Zion's hill salvation comes. Man, that's what I picture the, the, uh, the host 
that showed up to talk to the uh, shepherds to tell them about Jesus's birth. That's that's what I see. This angelic host. Now angels are sent as God's messengers most often, and the news that they give is sometimes bad, but usually it's good. In Luke chapter two, in this case, the news is actually better than good. It's the best news that has ever been proclaimed. It is the gospel. And it was announcing the most significant event in all of human history. So that's how the hymn begins, with this heavenly birth announcement that would usher in a time of peace on earth, where God would be reconciled to his people through the baby, the person of the Messiah. Now, the second verse emphasizes the identity of that Messiah. Listen to to this verse. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. I'm amazed at how Charles Wesley managed to pack four major theological truths about the identity of the Messiah into this one short verse. Look at each phrase. It's a mini course in Christology. We we see Jesus' deity, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, hail the incarnate deity. You know, John 1.1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We also see there his purity, his purity. Um, Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin womb. You know, why is it important for Jesus to have been born of a virgin? Well, it's it goes back to the doctrine of original sin. We are told in scripture that when Adam sinned, all now live in sin. It's passed from generation to generation. So it was so important for Jesus to not be born in the bloodline of a man, because he would have been born under the curse, just like all of us are. He would have been born into the sinful nature that we all have been born into as we inherited that sinful nature from Adam. But no, he was born of a virgin's womb, so that sin nature would not be in him. Yes, he was still born of a woman but born of a virgin woman, so that he would be pure. And that shows his purity, the purity of the Messiah. Lastly, we see his humanity. Pleased is man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. In John 1, 14, we read, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here again is the importance of God becoming man, putting on flesh, dwelling among us. Jesus tells us in Philippians chapter 2, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He served in humility, as we saw last week, and he was obedient to death. He needed to be a human in order to do that. He needed to be a human in order to die on a cross. It was his humanity that allowed him to die and to be raised again. His humanity allowed him to identify with us in our sin, though he was not uh, found to have any sin at all. 
it's important that we see his deity, his purity, and his humanity. Boy, Wesley really packed a wallop into those few lines that we just sang, showing us that Jesus is fully God and fully man. But this theology, as we saw, is also in other Christmas hymns like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. So what I really love about Hark the Herald Angels Sing is that last verse that we're coming to, a verse that as good as any Christmas hymn out there lays out the mission of what Jesus came to do. It's in this verse that gives us a sense of hope and even victory amidst all that the world can throw at us. You see, the final verse goes like this. Hail, the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail, the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. So again, we see here the identification of the Messiah as Prince of Peace. And in spite of what many people interpret that peace to mean, namely, most people think that that's going to be the peace between nations, peace between people. There is a deeper and a greater meaning to that peace that Jesus, as the Prince of Peace, will bring to us. The peace that is celebrated is actually the peace between God and man. This is the peace that the verse speaks of. And it's important to remember that because it's the peace between God and man. That's the path that we must follow if we are to understand the last verse of the hymn. Because the second identification of Jesus, the Messiah, here in this verse, is the Son of Righteousness. No, not the S-O-N, as some people like to think, the Son of Righteousness. No, it's the Son, S-U-N, of Righteousness. The Son of Righteousness. The, the picture is that the Son rises, okay? It rises just like this. the Son that we see every day rises. The Son of Righteousness is also going to rise as well. And that refers to an amazing prophecy found in the Old Testament book of Malachi. I want to read to you the entire fourth chapter of Malachi. It's not very long, but it's pretty powerful. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Now, obviously, this prophecy speaks not of the first coming of Jesus, but the second coming of Jesus, or what scripture refers to as the great day of the Lord, where God will come and wipe out all evil and will set up his kingdom permanently with a new heaven and a new earth 
and a new holy city, Jerusalem. In this chapter of Malachi, he contrasts the punishment of the wicked. You know, the stubble will burn in the furnace. Not a root or branch will be left to them. He contrasts that with the reward of the righteous. The sun, the sun that burns the wicked, is going to be that which warms those who are God's people. The warmth comes from under his wings, where we read of healing, which is, again, the opposite, the contrast of the destruction of the wicked. The light and the life, then, that Jesus brings as he rises with healing in his wings is essentially that eternal salvation promised by God through the prophets. The life eternal in a place where, ironically, there will be no more sun because the the Lord will be its light. The Lord, Jesus, will be the sun of righteousness. Now, you could make an argument that this prophecy was only showing that Jesus would include healing as a part of his earthly ministry when it says that he rises with healing in his wings. And that would be partially true because Jesus did heal all sorts of diseases and infirmities as part of his ministry. But it's very clear that those miraculous healings were a smaller part of something greater that God was intending to do and to for us to understand. And in that understanding, there are actually two parts. First of all, we see that the healings were a pushback, if you will, against a form of spiritual abuse of the religious leaders of that day. They had adopted a doctrine that said if you suffered, it was probably due to your sin, somebody's sin. The disciples of Jesus even fell to this error when they came across a blind man in the Gospels. And asked Jesus, why was he blind? Was it his sin that made him blind or his parents' sin? Of course, Jesus tells them neither was the case. He says in John 9, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be seen or displayed in his life. And then Jesus went on to explain, as long as it is day, I must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. But while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So light and life to all he brings, especially those who had been cast away as hopeless, helpless sinners. By healing this blind man, Jesus was pushing back against that spiritual abuse. And he was destroying that doctrine that had somehow fallen, uh, that, that this man had somehow fallen out of God's favor. And he was being punished by being blind. So that's the first thing that we must understand, uh, that uh, this is what Jesus was trying to do when he brought healing. Secondly, when Jesus would heal people, those healings would accompany the message and they would serve as validation of the message. If he had been teaching heretical ideas, if he had been teaching doctrine that went against God's word, then God would not have given him the power to work those miracles, to bring healing, to, to break the power of this imperfect world. So the miracles were shown so that what Jesus was teaching was truly the, the word of God, the truth of God. God backed him up by empowering him to perform the healings. So that's the th- second thing that I want you to understand. That's why we look at healings and, and how that would probably uh, re- relate to Jesus, even in his earthly ministry. But lastly, and more importantly, those physical healings, the, the, those healings that were a part of Jesus's earthly ministry, 
those were actually shadows of a greater healing. Because as devastating as lameness is, or blindness is, or anything else you might suffer in this life can be, what is most urgent in every person's heart, in every person's life, we need healing of our spirits. We need to have healing in the state of our sinful being, that, 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 that sinful being that condemns us to spiritual death. We need healing from our sinful nature. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, explains, He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. By Jesus' wounds we are healed. We must then ask what exactly was healed when Jesus died a torturous death. Well, that's what the rest of verse 3 of this hymn explains. Mild he lays his glory by, Philippians chapter 2. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth and born to give them second birth. In John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that unless a man is born again of water and spirit, he cannot enter into eternal life. Being born again means that we have allowed the sinful man to die because we were born into sin. We need that sinful man to die through the death of Jesus so that just as Jesus was raised to life, we can also be born anew into a new spiritual life, a new spiritual existence that is characterized no longer by sin, but by his righteousness that comes from a relationship with God. So the healing that is found under his wings, the warmth found in the Son of Righteousness, is a granted righteousness that comes from God. As Paul would explain in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that righteousness has the power to, to be raised to life through second birth, so that we may no longer have to taste the sting of death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, folks, if that isn't power, I don't know what else is. If you aren't moved by the understanding that God did this for you and offers you the kind of power that will get rid of your sin and allow you to live in righteousness, then maybe you don't really understand. See, Christmas is a time to be reminded of the truth that God provided for us what we could not, a way to be healed, not just from our physical infirmities, but from the infirmity of a sinful nature that will wind up only in destruction and death. In his wings, and in his wings alone, is there that kind of healing. In his wings alone is there that kind of light to shine in the darkness of this world. In his wings alone is there life amidst the spiritual death that was our reality. Perhaps for no other reason but for this, I will celebrate Christmas. I will celebrate the coming of Jesus into our world. Mildly laying his glory by the glory that he enjoyed in heaven, to become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Hallelujah. 
Hallelujah. Now, it feels like we're done, but not quite yet. Because as we wrap up this sermon, I want to look at two old-fashioned words that you find in this Christmas carol. This is kind of bonus that we're throwing in. Now, you, you shouldn't be surprised to find some archaic language because it was written in the 1800s. The words that Wesley used back then aren't necessarily used today. But even though we don't use these words in everyday language anymore, I want you to see this amazing connection. First of all, look at the first word of the entire song. It just jumps out at you. Hark! The herald angels sing. Hark! What does hark mean? Well, it means to pay attention. Listen up. It was used just like that to grab somebody's attention. The song really could start, hey! Hey! Not quite as poetic, but very real. Jesus was often heard to say, let him who has ears hear. Let him who has ears to hear listen. Essentially, that's what Jesus was saying. Hark! Hark! Listen! Why would God choose to continue to speak to us if we don't listen? Listen, the message has been proclaimed. Jesus has come, and salvation is yours if you want it. Are your ears open? Can you hear God telling you to come to salvation today? Hark! Listen! Listen to the message. Cut through all of the trappings and the tinsel and the garland and the tree and the lights. Cut through all of that and look what Christmas means. Hark, listen. Let your heart listen. The second word that is no longer used necessarily in our world today is the word hail. No, not the precipitation from the sky that sometimes brings damage to our cars. But hail, which was a salute. It was an acknowledgement. It was a term of respect. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail! the son of righteousness. To hail would mean to give worship that is due to the one who brings light and life and healing and eternal salvation. Welcome him. Listen to him and welcome him, giving him the worship that is due his name. So today, as we conclude this message, are you willing to hearken to his words and then to hail him as your king and savior? Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Well, that's it for this uh, ver- this uh, week of the, uh, the podcast. Um, next week, we will have joy to the world. And so I'm uh, looking forward to that. Uh, may this week be blessed. Uh, may your Christmas just be a fantastic one as you remember what it's all about. Um, thank you uh, to my team. Lisa Welly, executive producer, Steve Pittman, technical director. And thank you again for listening in. We'll talk to you next week.